hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to talk about Michel Foucault's short essay titled, What is Critique? But before jumping into that, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. If you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts and ideas to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Who knows? They might get a kick out of it. Uh, if you aren't new and you haven't already done those things, go and do those things. It helps me out a lot. we got to pump that algorithm, you know? Um, if you want to help me out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts, where there shouldn't be any ads, which is obviously good. Or if you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find it on YouTube, where I sometimes release videos if you're into that at all. So yeah, don't want to waste any more of your time with that stuff. Let's jump into this short essay titled, What is Critique?, which is very much um, a continuation or just a good supplement to his other essay, What is Enlightenment?, which is a way for him to think through Kant's essay titled, What is Enlightenment?, Kant's essay, of course, being famously having been written in a, in a newspaper column, essentially. Now, to start out, Foucault lays out that critique is, for him, an approach that seeks to understand and to police that which it cannot lay down the law to or in. And this might not be totally surprising. When we think of the act of critique, what we are, what we might think of is that act of saying, this is how this approach, this enterprise, this method of thought is wrong. And these are the reasons why. So it is, it implies a kind of virtue. That is, it is assuming that there is um, a, a right that has to be uh, remedied within what is wrong with a particular approach, with a particular school of thought, with, with a particular line of thinking that can be challenged and corrected. So critique assumes this position of propelling itself towards what is right and bringing along everything that it sees wrong with it to say, hey, every <laughs> everything else that we're pointing, uh, drawing our attention to here you all get it wrong, this is why, come with us now. Come with us to the light of the right. So Foucault likens this propensity for criticism or for critique with a broader critical attitude. And he looks at it historically at first here and traces it to the Christian church. Now the Christian church is a, obviously a church that is uh, very, that very much mandates people uh, subjugate themselves, that they willingly submit to governance so that they can find salvation. Now this government governance orchestrates itself in terms of truth in three different ways. So in the Christian church it says you must submit to God's truth. You must submit as well to the truth of the precepts of the church, that is the precepts of uh, confession, of um, interviews, of all of the rites and passages that come along with it. But also you have to submit to the truth of individuation or individualization. That is implying that you as a person are entirely responsible for your own salvation, which is in itself a product of a certain phase of human development. This wasn't always the case, and it still isn't always the case in all settings, but it corresponded to a specific period. Now he says that the church was able to mandate this type of governance by really selling the idea of truth and associating truth with these three different things. Now, over time, that is, and he points this to the 16th, 17th centuries, 
this operation or these operations of governance would be extended from the church into the broader social body. And it would take on a more nuanced approach. It wouldn't just apply a generalized form of power or form of governance over people. It would look into specific people, separate them by populations, and then institute specific forms of control for each of them. So people who might be suffering from a mental illness, which of course the diagnosis of which is going to be uh, conditioned by the specific situation of the time, uh, people who might be poor, uh, you know, suffering from uh, homelessness or, or uh, precarious living, people who are deviants in terms of sexuality or anything like that, any of these people would be understood or governed in a very specific way, which attests to the efficacy of this form of governance as it extended into the social body at large. So this type of governance took on a very specific role, and it was a role that could be identified. And certain people would, would be identified as being the wielders of this type of power, of this capacity to govern. So politicians, police, uh, religious figures, what have you. Now in response to that, because of a move, and this is a bigger point that I won't get into great deal detail here, because of the move from sovereign to disciplinary power, the opposition to power became a little bit more difficult. So no longer could it be that we have, as the people, are going to oppose a sovereign who is controlling us. Now, because power has become much more molecular and it has spread all throughout society, so there, you know, uh, supervisors have power, police have power, religious people have power, school teachers have power, it becomes very difficult to point to one single person and say, that is the person who is responsible for my malaise. That is the person who is responsible for my suffering. If we just do away with them, then that will make my life, our lives better. Because power has now spread out everywhere, what has also happened is an internalization of the very mechanisms of governance to the point that people don't even seek to not be governed, but seek instead to be governed in different ways. Now, one of the ways he thinks about this is in terms, again, of Christianity specifically, um, and this is actually my, my own example that helps me think about this. If we think of Luther, Martin Luther, who with his uh, so many 95 theses opposed the uh, Catholic Church, what he was doing was saying no to that power, saying no to the way that that power understood scripture, understood God, essentially. And what Luther said was, I am going to oppose this type of governance and submit to another one. That is the real word of God, the real word of scripture, which is just substituting one form of governance with another. And I think that this really captures the essence of critique here in that it demonstrates that opposition to power in the form of critique only ends up really mirroring at least in this paradigm where governance has been totally internalized, any opposition in terms of critique only ends up mirroring that same mode of governance and substitutes it, substitutes, substitutes it with another form of governance. But with that being said, Foucault isn't completely decrying it. Insofar as governance is tied up with the logics of power, 
of truth, of, of subjectivity, critique and critique of power will call into question those very dimensions, those very uh, institutions that we take to be absolutely universal or true or, or what have you. So critique becomes then a project of desubjectification. It might be desubjectification just to supplant it with another kind of subjectification, but it is desubjectification nevertheless. That is, it reveals the fragility of these ideas of truth, of power, of subjectivity, which is in itself somewhat radical in terms of understanding oneself and understanding oneself in a world of governance or of governmentality. This is similar to Kant's thesis in his essay, What is Enlightenment?, where he says that enlightenment is the project of liberating oneself or people from self-imposed tutelage or self-imposed immaturity, which depends which translation you're reading, but that is to say to liberate oneself from relying upon others for knowledge, for truth, for power, so that you can find it within yourself, using your own reason to come to your own conclusion. Now, at the end of that essay, in Kant's essay, Kant essentially appeals to obedience to say that at the end of the day, even though people are going to free themselves from self-imposed tutelage or from uh, subordination, what have you, people will naturally then just understand the uh, use and the truth of obedience. That is, they will just naturally fall in line because they'll know that that is for their best interest in terms of maybe a natural law of organization or of uh, human cooperation. And it is through that then that people can attain their, their highest possible uh, being. Now, Foucault asks, where is the room for critique there? Perhaps critique then for Kant, that is critiquing institutions, critiquing power, is only the act of pointing to the limits of the reason of those institutions, their, their logics, but also pointing to the limitations of any given person's own reason to say that, or to recognize that our reason can only go so far before we have to submit to something else. That is this, this obedience that will allow people to flourish and grow because they have to submit to something or else they would just be totally uh, detached, um, uncooperating, people with absolutely no connection to anyone and that's, that's no way to live. But then comes along people like the Frankfurt School or the Hegelian left before then that show how an excess of reason, how too much reason is actually bad, which is why, you know, there is a Kantian inspiration there. It's not just Hegel because insofar as Kant demonstrates in that essay that reason can only go so far, the Frankfurt School also show that Reason can actually produce unreason. An excess of reason eclipses reason, in, in Horkheimer's words. That is, with an abundance of what we associate with reason, be it uh, rationalization, be it uh, arithmetic, be it organization, we also see or have seen some of the greatest horrors to transpire, like Nazi Germany, for example. And Foucault also uses this to understand how different kinds of fascism within the 20th century shared some of these commonalities, this obsession with reason, this obsession with organization, with being more efficient or productive. So that is how he's able to associate then Stalinism with fascism to say that they, while obviously very different, are still, are both guided 
by these hidden logics of governmentality, of rationality, and of reason that seek to impose a certain ordering on the world. Now to look at history and to perform this kind of critique, he puts forward what he calls a historical philosophical approach, which he opposes to a philosophy of history or a history of philosophy even, which for him would be too, uh, to put it quite simply, would be too much of a surface evaluation of the various conditions at play. You know, looking at actual historical events and laying out cause and effect, he's not totally interested in that. Instead, he's interested in what he calls here this historical philosophical approach. And this historical philosophical approach is gonna be, in his words, interested in the pure imminence of singularities, which is a very fancy way of saying just interested in events as things on their own. Of course, they were affected or conditioned by things before them, but by considering them as singularities, it is taking them to be things in themselves, not, not in a Kantian way, just things on their own, which then even have a bearing on the same conditions that condition them. So they aren't just products of things. They are autonomous things on their own that come to affect even their own conditioning elements, the things that condition them. And beyond that, come to affect other things in the world, affect other things in the world, and produce then more effects, to produce events, to make things occur, which must then, through this lens, this historical philosophical lens, be understood as pure singularities themselves. Now, in his words, the historical philosophical approach is going to be it's going to try to desubjectify the philosophical question by referring to its historical content, to liberate the historical contents questioning the effects of power from the truths which they are supposed to restore. And that is, in, in other words, it is his way of dissuading us from looking at or trying to find origins, root causes of things, which is uh, also dovetails with his essay, what, what is an Author, which I've covered. And I've covered all those other texts I've mentioned, What is Enlightenment? Kant's version, I think I've done Foucault's version too, uh, Foucault's What is an Author, I've covered all those, so you can go and find them on this channel or podcast site, wherever you are listening to this now. But what he is saying here is dissuading us from trying to search for origins as the determining factor for meaning or for um, conditioning any given effect, because that's just a way to limit the possibility of understanding things on their own as their own pure singularities. Not to mention the fact that when we consider this thing called an origin, what we are implying is that in the course of history are things that can be unearthed with the proper analytic tools, the proper analytic frame through which to understand the world. Of course, that completely ignores the fact that these very frames, these very methods to understand the world are gonna be conditioned by some setting. Or other. So this, this historical philosophical approach, one that is going to try to look for uh, these different minglings between these imminent singularities or these pure singularities, is indebted to this project of critique that can be associated with the Enlightenment. And so then we have to wonder how much of our very understanding of the world is not telling us anything about the world itself, it is actually telling us about the very methods we are employing to understand that world, and therefore, we are learning less about history than we are learning about ourselves and how we are trying to understand history. 
we learn more about the methods we employ to understand the world, to understand history, then maybe we actually understand about history itself. Because we have to use very specific methods focused to a specific time, or that we accrue and develop from a specific time to look at that world. So we can then learn more about ourselves by instead taking that uh, analytic rigor, instead of applying it to history, applying it to this very method, in this case, this historical philosophical approach, to better understand this thing called critique. And of course, this is going to have to consider various minglings of knowledge and power, the various ties between different organizations, people, groups, and how some groups are going to be legitimated, how some ideas are going to be legitimated, how even the very possibility of recognizing something as an historically relevant event or group or idea or people, whatever, it is only possible to do so because it already complies to our very capacities to recognize it. That is, if it fell without beyond the parameters of recognition, we wouldn't have any other way to really grasp it. So one of the ways that I like to think about this is with the study of serial killers, for example. And if anyone is familiar with popular shows like Mindhunter or uh, podcasts like Crime Junkie or whatever, might know what I'm talking about here. But we only know, that is, we being social scientists studying serial killers or psychologists, whatever, studying serial killers, only know what they know because of the serial killers that have been caught, not the ones that haven't been caught. So there are entire swaths of possible understandings that are just, we don't even know what to ask. We don't even know what to look for because these people have never been caught. So we only know what we can know. We don't even know what we can't know in terms of understanding serial killers and trends and how they operate, how they think and what, what drives them. Now, that might be a bit of a banal example, but I think it demonstrates that in order to understand anything, we are only going to be able to do so based off of our previous knowledge. We aren't going to be able to look at something that completely evades our understanding of a, a thing already. That is something that doesn't at least partly correspond to our own history, our own way of understanding it. So to further schematize this historical philosophical approach, he breaks it down into three separate, I guess, approaches that all work together. That is the archaeological, the genealogical, and the strategic. Now, the archaeological is going to be concerned primarily with the given historical conditions of power and knowledge. Who holds power? How is that power exercised? Who does it affect? Quite simply. The genealogical is going to be looking at the ways in which each one of those sites of power is going to be uh, undermined, in part, by the very things that it seeks to subjugate, pointing to the limits of possible power, which then opens up the possibility to understand things on their own and how they mingle and how they cooperate with one another, open up sites of resistance, open up sites of novelty and newness. And that pushes us into the strategic that completely, uh, that considers in great detail, and there's actually something very profoundly interesting about this for me uh, because it relates very uh, powerfully to Baudrillard's idea about seduction and reversibility. But here Foucault says that the strategic lens of the historical philosophical approach is going to be concerned with the very reversibility of power in these situations, the very reversibility that is opened up by considering the 
rhizomatic, if I can say, minglings of these different pure singularities in their imminence that poses challenge, challenges to power, poses challenges to itself in its constant undoing and its uh, both its eternal identity, identities, as those identities are constituted and reconstituted through these historical approaches. So, you know, textbooks uh, keep history alive and it keeps certain ideas alive. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that these ideas are very fragile and very delicate and always anticipating their own undoing. Now, will not to be governed, a will not to be governed, might occasion such a kind of historical philosophical approach, one that is going to look at history in such a nuanced way. But of course, it is important to acknowledge that this approach is only going to be conditioned by this conditions of the time. It's only going to be uh, permitted or it will only be allowed to go to certain areas and to look at things based off of its own previous knowledge. It won't actually be able to pursue much that is new. It will only be able to do what it already knows. And it is from here that critique uh, is opened up and, it, and perhaps it can traverse new ground. Perhaps it can't. But this is what Foucault essentially leaves us with. And that's essentially it. I don't know if that was helpful to anyone. If there's anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Who knows? They might get a kick out of it. And uh, yeah, catch you next time. Take care.